listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Randall Worley. Good morning. I um, want to begin by saying, uh, you know, I always enjoy coming back here and I unashamedly uh, am attempting to be the most reinvited guest speaker. Uh, say that without any uh, shame at all. Uh, Robin and I, we have the opportunity to talk quite often on the phone. And uh, we talk about the scripture. We talk about aging. Uh, we talk about, uh, well, actually, the other day, I think our conversation was dominated primarily by us volleying jokes back and forth. Oh, well, there's one of them I thought I would share if it's okay with you. <laughs> uh, you know, speaking of aging, um, there was this couple that had been married for 50 years. And their children decided that they were going to throw a big celebration for them. So they decorated the house and invited other family members and friends over. And it was a great celebration. Um, the man, the husband, was well into his 70s and was very hard of hearing. So after all the children had left, the festivities, you know, had settled down, everyone's gone, they both walk out on the porch, the husband and wife, and he loosens his tie and he sits down in the rocking chair across just a few feet away from his wife, and they're, you know, ruminating about the day, and um, she looks over at him and she says, sweetheart, I'm proud of you. And he looked back at her with a rather puzzled look on his face, and he said, well, I'm tired of you too. So, <laughs> I, I brought just a handful of books um, with me. I, I had some in my car, and those are free to whoever wants them. Um, I think it's the first time I've ever done that. But um, uh, there's only two there. I'm working on my third. Uh, the first one is Brushstrokes of Grace. The other one is Wandering and Wondering, the process that leads to purpose. So um, I got a text this past week, and when I received it, when I started reading it, I was immediately sucked into it before I realized what was going on. And the text says, a good friend of mine has two tickets for the 2019 Super Bowl, 50-yard line box seats. He paid 2500 each, but he didn't realize last year when he bought them, it was going to be the same day as his wedding. Now, I'm getting excited, you know, so far. He said, if you're interested, he's looking for someone to take his place. It's at St. Michael's Church at 3 p.m. <laughs> the bride's name is Nicole. She's five four, 115 pounds, cooks good. She'll be the one in the white dress. So... Obviously, today, uh, the national psyche, so to speak, for the most part, is somewhat obsessed um, with the ultimate of all sporting events. And um, again, I say for the most part. That doesn't mean that everybody's bought into that, but um, it certainly captures the attention of, you know, most of the populace. And I think probably the reason for that is because they vicariously experience the euphoria of winning or the agony of being defeated. So with that said, I, I want to sort of talk about this misconception about the winners and losers. Who are they? Um, there are essentially two types of wisdom that influence us all the time. Um, when we go to bed tonight, there is already at play a news cycle that will be poised to influence the way you think about things and what you consider to be important. They have already decided what you should pay attention to. Does that make sense? And I, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but it, it, it's certainly true. 
And the two types of wisdom that we are exposed to, first of all, is a conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom is what is accepted by the masses. It's, um, it's, it really tries to shape our world view. It's very, it's very subtle, but it's at play. I think most of you would agree with that. Um, Maybe we need to realize that there is another form of wisdom, which is far more subversive, that you see in the ministry of Jesus in particular. He's always um, stirring up the imaginations of people and trying to help them to see that there is definitely a different way of having the human experience. Um, for me, at least, it seems like when I read uh, all these aphorisms and these parables that Jesus is throwing out there, it's, it's like he's teasing their imagination. You're not quite sure what he was talking about. And um, as I've said so many times before, which is uh, somewhat confrontational with people, Jesus didn't really come to teach people what to think, but how to think. He really was not obsessed with trying to convert people in, in their thinking, but to engage them in something that may transform their lives forever. So it's into this kind of world that the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, in the first century world, um, it's not very much different than the 21st century world that we live in, that he introduces a subversive type of wisdom. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, and listen to this, again, this subversive type of wisdom. You know, Paul's world, again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Paul's world was enamored with the powerful and with the beautiful people, enamored with wisdom. And so he says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Who is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, we're going to examine some of these words that Paul uses in a moment. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now look at verse 26. Thanks for pulling that up on the screen. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I want to calm your nerves here in the beginning and tell you uh, that I'm not going to exegete everything that is in those verses I just read to you. Robin asked me before I came up, he said, how long are you going to be speaking? And uh, I told him about a friend of mine one time that was in a meeting, and he had his uh, briefcase sitting up on the front row, and somebody asked him, is that your case? He said, well, that's my case, but there's nothing brief about my case. So at any rate, I, I don't, I don't want to alarm you here. I'm, uh, I, maybe I should make a promise to you that Elizabeth Taylor made to her eighth husband, and that is I won't keep you very long. Uh, maybe that would help some of you. But Paul is confront, confronting the conventional wisdom of, of the time uh, because we, they are under the influence, under the occupation of this world superpower, the, the Roman Empire. 
Um, and that and that particular culture was very striated for for sure. It was very class oriented, and so for him to begin to speak to the Greek mind, to speak to this Roman culture, and suggest to them that there's something powerful about weakness is paradoxical in nature. It's it's totally counterintuitive for him to be talking about the cross of Jesus which looks like appears from their perspective. You got to understand that we are looking at it from a different lens. Looks like to them abject defeat. When you think about a naked man whose body has been bludgeoned almost beyond recognition. The prophet Isaiah got a glimpse of him in his prophecy. And he said, when I saw him, his visage was marred more than any other man. And so to suggest that a man who had been indicted and convicted of treason, of blasphemy, and here he hangs naked on a busy highway in being crucified, that that is the epitome of power, rocks their world. Now, again, to us, because we see it from the perspective of forgiveness and atonement, don't we? But we have to understand that it didn't look that way. It just didn't appear that way. And so what he is doing is he is he's looking back at the cross, as I see it, And he is turning their world upside down. The truth is, and I'm saying something here that you are familiar with, I'm sure, that everything about the kingdom of God is the antithesis of what we know and what we value. The way up is down. The way you add is by subtracting. The way you multiply is by dividing. And the way you live is by dying. Again, you know, later on today... Uh, there will be a team at the center of the field on fifty on the fifty yard line that will hoist the uh, Lombardi Trophy, and so many of those who are just obsessed with this, and I'm I don't I don't want that to have a condemning tone to it. They will experience that vicariously. Uh, tomorrow on the job, there will be people that say we won. No, you didn't win. You watched. No, you didn't win. You watched. But we have this this need, it seems, to identify with the winners and not the losers. Yeah. Isn't it true? I mean, that's it's convicting even to me. And, uh, you know, we, we forget that Jesus says things like this. I mean, these are powerful sound bites. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. What did he mean by that? Or he says things like, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, you'll discover it. A paradox, truly. But we love winners. I like winning. I was playing cards last night with my... Uh, son and daughter-in-law, and I felt at one point this need in me just to dominate the situation. Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. And I, I was already beginning to meditate on what I was going to talk to you about. And I was convicted in that moment. Why is it so important for me to win? Maybe you would agree with me that the things that I have learned the most from have not been my successes, but the times I've failed grievously. Am I the only one? I've learned the most about myself. I've learned the most about life from the failures and the embarrassments it has been course, it, it, these have been significant course corrections in my life. I, for, for me at least, uh, and you, you take this and sort it out later, for me at least, real wisdom is not always asking, why is this happening to me, but asking myself, what is it saying to me? What is this saying to me about me? What is this saying to me about how I see the world and how I see other people. 
Now, Paul uses some interesting words here when he makes the statement that he would choose the weak things, the weak things. This this is a word that we define as being an invalid, somebody that's a total invalid. This doesn't make sense to the Greek mind. And he would choose the foolish things to confound the wise. This is the word from which we derive the word moron. So he's basically saying the people that I've called, this should be encouraging to a host of people. (laughs) The people that God has called are the morons and the invalids. Now you understand this is, this is truly a subversive wisdom, isn't it? It's extremely counterintuitive in nature. And he says, this is where the real power is. Now, I, I say this with all sincerity. After 40 plus years, I am learning something that I refer to as the spirituality of imperfection. Embracing how perfectly imperfect I am. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow, especially with someone that's been doing this as long as I have and how important it is that I get the attaboys, that I get the affirmation. But Paul makes it clear, and you gotta, you gotta understand something about this man who stands head and shoulders above all of his colleagues. He's responsible for giving us two thirds of the New Testament. And when he has his encounter with the Lord that is described in Acts chapter 9, you remember it well. It was quite an encounter, wasn't it? Uh, This man who will give his resume in the letter to the Philippians, he would say of himself, he would say that I am a Hebrew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Pharisee of all the Pharisees. When it comes to the law, as things touching the law, I am totally blameless. But then after he categorizes that, that impressive resume, he said, I count all this as dung. That's quite a shift in his thinking, isn't it? Uh, maybe sometimes when we're reading the words of the Apostle Paul, this prolific author, um, we tend to think that he had it all together or that he understood it all. I, I think if you really heard what I read from 1 Corinthians, you came to a totally different conclusion. And he understood that it was in his weakest moment where he discovered perfection. This, this next statement probably is going to be challenging for a lot of people, but I think spiritual growth happens more often when we get it wrong than when we get it right. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. Yeah. I'll say that again. I think quite often spiritual growth really happens not when we're always getting it right, but when we're getting it wrong. Hmm. The power brokers, the power hungry, even the power lifters have one thing in common, and that is they're not enough. They don't have enough. Oddly enough, perceived strength is usually the source of our most debilitating weakness, I think. Maybe like me, you understand that sometimes the most menial tasks require me to reach deep for some latent source of untapped energy that I didn't even realize I had. There is nothing more frustrating to me to know that I have a myriad of responsibilities that are demanding that they get done and I feel void of an ounce of motivation. But in that very moment is when there's something that is tapped, that is latent inside of me, that is not my own weakness. I'll say amen to this myself, even if you don't. Yeah, this, this is when I discover something about myself that I didn't know about myself. This is what causes me to call upon the Christ that is in me. I think that's why Paul would say, you know, so beautifully in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
he's essentially saying that it's not even my faith. Usually when people hear someone teaching about faith, it's about trying to summon something within yourself. It is about, you know, mentally uh, getting things together and, uh, and pushing forward. I, I don't think it's about that at all. I think it's about discovering that the faith that we have is not something that we created in ourselves, but something that he gave to us freely as a gift, just like he did with grace. For every person in this room uh, that has reached a point, and I know because I talk to people all the time, that has reached the point almost of self-loathing. That's probably a really good place. God has a weakness. That sounds blasphemous. God has a weakness. What is that weakness? It's yours. It's so attractive to him. <laughs> Do they always look at you like this? <laughs> Only on Sunday. Only on Sunday. You remember, I'm sure, um, another Corinthian passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is earnestly asking the Lord to deliver him from this thorn in the flesh. And there's been all kinds of speculation as to what the thorn in his flesh was. I personally believe that had nothing to do with some sort of physical malady. I don't think it had to do with a disease that he had contracted even though some would say that, you know, if we, if we employ the principle of interpretation that goes back to the first time this uh, metaphor is used, a thorn in the flesh, you go back to the Old Testament and you understand that this has nothing to do with those things that are going on externally or, or internally, but those things are going on externally. It has to do with people. You know, everybody has a problem, is a problem, or has to live with a problem to some degree. And, it's, you know, I, I think probably the quicker we learned out, learn that life is not a sexually transmitted disease. It really is, and it's not a sexually transmitted disease. But we, we are here to discover that we showed up with an antidote for suffering. And so when he talks about this thorn in the flesh and he's pleading with the Lord, would you please deliver, this, deliver me from this? He, he uses strong language. He said, I'm being buffeted by this messenger from Satan. He's talking about the people around him, the Judaizers, those that are constantly creating problems for him. You know, most of the time, the change that we are desperate to see take place in other people is the change that really needs to take place in us. We, I think we would benefit in understanding that everybody is our teacher. What I'm doing right now is really not teaching. Uh, tomorrow and throughout the week, when you encounter abrasive people, you should realize They've been sent into your life to teach you because God is always coming to us disguised as our own life. The people that have taught me the most, they were, they were totally unaware of. The people that have taught me the most about unconditional love are the people that have betrayed me the worst. Am I really teaching it? Am I really treating it as a teaching moment? And so, you know, he's pleading with the Lord, would you please deliver me from this thorn in the flesh? And what is the response he finally gets? I mean, we can read this in a matter of seconds, this passage of Scripture. But the sense that I get from it, it was this is a back and forth that is going on between Paul possibly for years. You know, quite often... I believe God will deliberately appear to be indifferent to you until you're ready to really learn. I mean, consider whenever, uh, you know, he's asleep in the back of, of this little crude fishing vessel 
and they are, have set out to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes asleep, and then this violent storm, the, the, you know, I mean, the Sea of Galilee is churning, and these guys are losing their minds, and he's asleep. And they, they go back, and they wake him up. I mean, how do you sleep through that? And they wake him up, and what is the first thing that they say when he's wiped sleep out of his eyes? Don't you care? Don't you care? Yeah. And Jesus asked them the question. He said, where is your faith? And that, you know, that may sound like that was pretty cruel. Where is your faith? And to me, I think what he's saying is, where is your focus? What is your perspective? How do you see this? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. We look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. But he appeared to be indifferent. So if you have this sense right now of that God is indifferent to you, he's really waiting for you to wake up and to get his perspective. The things that I, you know, I, I feel like I need to desperately learn and I don't seem to be learning it, it's probably because I'm not ready. It's like the old proverb says, you know, that it's not in the Bible. It's a Buddhist proverb, by the way. I guess I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> All wisdom belongs to God, by the way. All wisdom belongs to God, regardless of the medium through which it comes through. So the proverb is this. I hope I recovered from that one. <laughs> hmm. Is when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Now, I feel like I'm getting too far off in the weeds here. What was the response to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. My power, his power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest. How many people have you heard boasting about their weakness? Not long ago, uh, and this is another message all uh, entirely, um, not long ago, I was listening to someone, uh, he, w- he was a communicator, and he just briefly, he didn't elaborate on it, he just briefly mentioned a form of art that I'd never heard of before, it's called kintsugi. It's a Japanese form of art that dates back to the 15th century. Now, w- and that's all he said. And I thought, what is that? And so I, it set me on a pursuit to know about Kintsugi. Have you ever heard of it? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Kintsugi. What makes this form of art really unique, and again, it originated in the 15th century, is that the artisans of that time would take vessels, a vase, a priceless heirloom, and it usually was priceless because it was that. It was an heirloom. It was something that had been handed down for generations that had been broken. And rather than discarding it, what did they do with it? They took it and pieced it back together, sordering it together, and dusted the cracks, accentuated the cracks, made them more noticeable with gold and silver. Which I hope, I hope you're, you're getting the logic here that there really is a beauty in brokenness. Truly a beauty in brokenness. I mean, we live in a charismatic culture that places a high value on breakthrough. And I'm about breakthrough, but I wonder sometimes if we've minimized the value of brokenness. That rather than hiding it, this form of art actually accentuates it. I mean, this is, this is clearly what, you, what we're seeing in, that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, that he chooses those things that are moronic in nature and those things that are almost invalid, that make us invalids. And he chooses that because that is something that he can accentuate in order to bring forth his glory. I'm encouraging myself. (laughs) 
in uh, in Second Corinthians eleven, I, I'm reading more verses than I norm, normally do, <laughs> but that's okay. You'll get caught up on all your scripture reading today. In Second Corinthians eleven, he talks about countless beatings that he experienced that were often near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, without, often without food, cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me and anxiety for all the churches. Uh, I I wish I had time to elaborate at great length on some of the things that he is describing that he went through. But really, I think that what he is saying here, if you read it in its broader context, he was not bemoaning the fact that he had gone through this, but how he had grown through it. Not just gone through it, but he had grown through it. And he understood, again, as my title indicated, that what appears to be losing is actually winning. You know, uh, the human psyche has difficulty with that. The ego fights against that. The carnal mind, the scripture says, is always at war with God. And so, uh, you know, when he talks about the beatings that he experienced, on how many occasions? Five different occasions. You do the math on that, especially if it's a, a cat of nine tails, as Jesus was beaten with. You do the math, and can you imagine what this man's body looked like? It looked like a, a, a road map. The scar tissue would have made him look hideous. Maybe that's the reason why he would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he's talking about warfare. See, that's another passage of Scripture that I've been guilty of taking out of context for years. Remember when he says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, Right? bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ and every vain imagination. You, you remember that passage of Scripture? And we tend to, you know, to land on that verse of Scripture and we assume that what Paul is talking about is that we're supposed to take on principalities and powers and strongholds in our particular region. And that's not what he was talking about at all. Because he goes on later and he says, those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise talks about comparison. Well, if you go back to the first verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll discover that what he's talking about is the perception of the Corinthian church of Paul. Remember, I'm still talking about a group of people that are enamored with beauty and strength and power and eloquence and all those kinds of things. And he says in those first verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, now I know, I've heard the rumors. I know that you've been saying that I'm in presence. That's the old King James. I'm in presence base. Let me, let me translate that for you. He says, I know that what you guys have been saying that I am ugly. I'm not very attractive. I mean, he, he certainly would not be someone that would be a celebrity Christian today. Not only because of the weight that he said, but he was not easy on the eyes, ladies and gentlemen. He says, I know what you've been saying, that I'm hard to look at. So when he talks about this, this warfare, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and dealing you know, with vain imaginations or the way people see you or the way you see yourself, that's what he's talking about. So again, you know, his body looks like a veritable roadmap. And then he talks about how that he was beaten with rods. I mean, this is an unspeakable act, an unconscionable act of brutality that he's describing. Let me, let me fill you in on it if you're not familiar with it, because this was a means of torture that was common among the Romans, not only crucifixion, but beating someone with rods. They would take the victim by the ankles. Two Roman Praetorian soldiers would take the victim by the ankles, holding them upside down, while another Roman burly 
Roman guard would take a steel rod and smash all the bones in their feet. Now, he didn't have an orthopedic surgeon. It does make sense to me why Luke joined him eventually, the doctor, (laughs) in his missionary journeys. But can you imagine after that happened to him three times, and they're not putting cast. He doesn't have an orthopedic surgeon. What his feet must have looked like. Or when he says that he was stoned. Did you recall I read that? That he was stoned? I believe that he's describing what happened to him at Lystra. Remember he was stoned? He was stoned to death. Stoned to death. If you know anything about stoning in the, in the ancient world, I mean, this, uh, this is not just a bruising. These, these are not just lacerations that he experienced. In fact, the last thing that they would do after the victim fell into a state of unconsciousness is they would roll a boulder over on their skull that weighed at least 100 pounds and were convinced that the stoning was complete when they began to see gray matter oozing out of their ears. So what this man must have looked like. Now, I understand with far more clarity what he is saying. (laughs) That it wasn't how he looked to other people. Didn't matter. It wasn't how, I mean, that's, that's hard for us to relate to, of course, here in the Western world. But a lot of you have been crippled by a lot of different things. I've been crippled by a lot of different things. It made, it made it difficult for me to stand in faith. There have been many things that have scarred me to the point that I thought I would never heal from it. Am I helping anybody this morning? It's helped, it's helped me to understand what it's like. You know, I think Maxwell is responsible for saying this, that, that uh, winners... Um, are winning is not everything and that losing is more about learning than anything else. I may have not gotten that quote quite right, but it's close enough. I started out by creating the context of what is going on in our culture right now. And, and, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm competitive to a degree. I want to win. I want to do well. I'm, I'm not giving us a license, you know, just to live lazily. But to put in perspective and to know that this is where real wisdom is found. When it's not working. You know, um, I have have a friend that is a powerful, powerful speaker. If I mention his name, you would know it. You'd recognize it. I dare say that it would be anybody in this room that wouldn't know this name. And I remember several years ago, after we had been doing some meetings together, he looked at me, and out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth spoke, and he said, you know, Randall, you're only as good as your last meeting. You're only as good as the last time you spoke. That was jarring to me because I realized that in many ways that's the way I had lived. God gives grace to the humble, doesn't he? Oh, how many times have we heard that? It's worn smooth with familiarity. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. You know... um, in the in the there's a in the whole family of words related to humility there is humor and humus and humanity all those words revolve around the same meaning maybe like me uh you're not very adept at laughing at yourself Because you've got plenty of people laughing at you, but you haven't learned to laugh at yourself. The, the word humus has to do with things that have decayed. When's the last time you really thank God for letting something die? I'm so thankful. 
that something died. This is, I mean, this is the word that is akin to uh, rich topsoil. Man, when I look back across the landscape of my life and all the things that I thought would live forever and they died, and sometimes they, it, they died in an ugly way. If I approach that with real wisdom, I understand that I was winning even when I appeared to be losing. That something is going to grow out of that. I came to encourage you, but from the looks on your faces, some of you, I, I, I wonder if you're past encouragement. Um, are you hearing me here? Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead and stand with me. You know, um, this happened to me about, I guess, about two years ago. <clears throat> I was doing my best to muster as much courage as I could in the particular situation that I was in, and it just wasn't there. And um, what had happened was actually emasculating to me. It was an assault, an all-out assault on my perceived identity. And uh, I'm not like a lot of people that I know that have heard God audibly. I didn't hear him say this audibly, but it, it would not have had any more impact on me if he'd said it audibly. And he said, uh, you, you need to discover this. Randall, you're not here to learn how to survive. You're here having this human experience in order to learn how to surrender. That had a profound impact on me. As long as you're continuing, you know, to attempt to, to save your life, you're going to lose it. Don't we? It's true, isn't it? We expend our energy struggling to, to uh, appear to be strong and in control. That doesn't work, does it? I honestly think that the, you know, the, the gathering that we call the church, as far as I see it, is the gathering of the weakness of man, which becomes the gathering of the power of God. So I want to pray for you. You survived. You made it through. I want to pray for you. For every mother in this room that feels like that the children that came through them, that came to them and through them, that feels like that they are failing miserably. And sometimes the worst thing in the world is a good example. I, I said that the way I meant to say it. Because we think, you know, a good example, that's everything. No, sometimes the worst thing in the world is a good example. Because of our tendency to compare. For every mother in this room that is struggling and feeling that they are failing. For every father, for every husband in this room that has this inner sense of self-loathing over what you're not, the feeling of inadequacy. I'm asking, Lord, that you would just overshadow us with a grace that causes us to see that in our perceived losing, that there is perfection that is awaiting on us. As, as paradoxical as that is, like Samson, <laughs> I love this. The most, what, what do you think is the most defining moment in Samson's life? What do you think? I believe it was when he died because the scripture says that he killed more of the enemy in his death than he did in all of his life. Yet he is led by a boy with his head shaved, utterly humiliated of what he felt like was his identity. He's blind and he's led to the pillars of this Philistine palace. 
And when all that crumbles in on him, he killed more in his death than he did in all of his life. The paradox of power. Yeah. So for the weakest per- person in this room, uh, for people that are constantly taunted by this endless loop that runs in their head, by now I should have, by now I could have, by now, by this time, I should have finished this. By this time, I should have been this further along. Mm. I ask for grace. If you need that, just lift, lift up your hands right now in receiving mode. I ask for grace. And may we be able to summon the courage that the apostle Paul did and learn to boast in our weaknesses. <laughs> Not in our accomplishments, but to boast in our weaknesses. Rather than hiding it, dust it with gold, dust it with silver, Lord. Every fracture. We are not vessels of dishonor that are are to be discarded. We embrace it. (sighs) We kiss the cross. We don't just carry it. We're not just taking up our cross to follow you. We actually kiss it. We actually kiss it. And we embrace, as I said, the spirit, the true spirituality of imperfection. In the name of Jesus, thank you for your sweet grace. Thank you for your unfailing love. <laughs> thank you that we are all losers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We are all losers. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you. Sit down for just a second. Uh, We got just a little bit more time because the kids are not going to be done until 1210. How about that? that? Yeah. But um, I was just getting wrecked this morning while Randall was preaching in the best way. And and, uh, I just want to... I don't want to do a PS to his message. Here's what I want to do. I want to acknowledge the way the Lord puts things together. And, and um, I've been spending a lot of time in my life the last few years thinking about the future of the church. And Robin and I have been talking together about how um, individually we have been in probably the weakest moment of our lives in terms of um, just where we find ourselves. Uh, theologically or just in our walk with the Lord in our, in our, in our just individual lives. But, but I've had this feeling in, in a corporate sense as a church. And, um, I, I, I just want to be really honest with you. Like I, I, I come off the stage most mornings feeling totally depleted after we've done worship. And I, and I've, I've been asking the Lord, Lord, why does this not feel the way it used to feel to me? And, and I, I, I've been getting the sense from the Lord that he's, he's weaning me. He's weaning us off of the addiction to the fireworks in church that we see all the time. It's like he's taking us to a place where, um, where we don't feel uncomfortable at all. And the thing that we want to do the most when we're in that place of discomfort is to go run to the place, the dream or the the desire that seems strong and wonderful. It's like way over there where you know all the good things happen. That's the place you want to go. And the Lord is, I, I, I feel this beckoning of the spirit. There's this work of the spirit where the hardest thing for him to teach us is how to embrace a life of weakness. It's, it's, it's counter to everything that I think about life, which is what Randall was talking about this morning. I mean, is, is this resonating with anybody this morning? So 
Um, Randall, thank you so much. That was, that was a very powerful word about weakness this morning. So, yeah. I have actually heard myself say on more than one occasion, the weakest I've been in my entire Christian life has been these last four years. And um, let me see, I wrote a book. We built a $300,000 church with $80,000 in the bank. We built in the church staff. I drug a leg around, finally got a new knee. And really, in some ways, it felt inwardly as broken up as ever. But there's something so sweet about, about that because it's, a, it's, <clears throat> it's about trusting I don't feel particularly ashamed, you know, you just, but the last time I felt that way was days and weeks before an incredible outpouring of the power of God. I can remember years ago weeping. So everything I did broke. Everything I tried, I gave up. I just couldn't make life work the way I had envisioned it. And I can remember weeping so hard in my, when I would inhale, I could hear the devil laugh at me. It was the strangest episode. And so after that weeping came, that incredible outpouring of joy and laughter that the Lord brought to once again, refresh the church. And so I really do think the acknowledgement of weakness and the experience of weakness um, precedes the presence and power of God because the issue at stake there, even with Paul, was that no flesh should glory in his presence. And what that means is so that we would give credit where credit is due, that God would really receive. And it's not that... He's a malevolent dictator who demands glory. It's the truth. He's a God of truth, and he should be honored for what he is, who he is, and what he does, because it's just simply, simply the truth. So I don't know how, how much sense that makes, but I do appreciate Randall. Randall's, he's been a very dear friend. He's, he and I are charter members of the Through Many Dangers, Toils, and Snares We Have Already Come Club. Come on, let's thank the Lord for speaking to us and encouraging us. It's really, really good. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.